Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 86 of the Howie Games Part 8. Obviously, strange times at the moment, really strange times. So right off the top, I hope you're all happy and healthy and taking care of loved ones around you. This week, a man who wrote himself into one of the most famous pages of Australian sporting history. Prior to November 16th, 2005, John Aloisi was known as a wonderful footballer who had succeeded in Europe and represented the Socceroos with great distinction. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. After that magical Sydney night in November 2005, the best sporting moment I reckon I've seen alongside Kathy Freeman's gold medal run in Sydney, Johnny Aloisi became forever known as the bloke that broke the drought and took Australia back to the World Cup finals. Do yourself a favour. After you've had a listen to the show, go back and Google the penalty shootout from 2005. It will give you goosebumps galore. John's story, though, is about so much more than that single penalty. But when you hear about some of the things he went through to be in a position to step up and take that kick, it reinforces the message that flows through this entire show. Never give up. Never give up because you just never know. John, here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. Enjoy Johnny Aloisi. There's only one Aloisi. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Hey, Johnny Aloisi, welcome to the Howie Games Thanks for having me Great to have you here, I've got to say the best way to start this, because there's so much to talk about, is to start right back at the start, and probably even before you were around, mm. the, the name Aloisi, it's an Italian name? You're, yeah, Italian your background. Was from yeah, Italy? so my dad was born in Italy. Right. His, uh, his dad came over, I'm pretty sure, in the, the 50s, uh, four years before my old man and the rest of the family came out. Um, to yeah, just make enough money to, to bring him out. And, so he wouldn't uh, have seen his kids for four years? Yeah, four years, wow. yeah. And then uh, my dad, I think it was about nine um, when he arrived in Australia. And uh, my mum um, is also Italian background, but she was born uh, in Adelaide. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that saying that, that's probably everyone thinks that's the reason why I grew to love, you know, uh, soccer, yeah. football. Um, because my dad played it and, and coached it, but um, all his brothers played footy and cricket. And, Did they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what was his name, your dad? Uh, Rocky. Right. Yeah, so he, he also was a big cricket uh, player and he loved he loved cricket, loves Aussie rules. Um, but, you know, he, he had a soft spot for, for soccer. It's funny, and I, I, I know you mentioned you'd listened to a bit of the episode with Ange Postacoglu, and yeah. it's amazing, and I chatted with this with Ange, that people are prepared to go on the other side of the world, sometimes where they don't speak the language. Yeah. Like you're talking about not seeing your kids for four yeah. years. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when we look how small the world is now, but then when people were moving to this country, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and look, I, I, underst- uh, I understand that they needed to do that to, you know, to have a better life and... Um, and my my dad always says that you know he's thankful that his his dad did that for for his family and then also for us and but that also helped me when I ended up going to play overseas yep. because when I first moved over um, you know there was no internet there was you know I'd uh, ring home once a week and mm. 
you know, being from a close-knit family, it was, it was tough going. But because uh, I thought about what my grandfather did, um, he did it for different reasons. He did it for to survive and to, to have a better life. I did it because I loved football and yep. that was uh, the way to play at the, the highest level possible was to go play in Europe. But it was it was tough going at first. Well, I remember sitting down with you in, on the Triple M in Melbourne and um, you were winding up down there and you, you were moving to Brisbane. I remember you, you know, you got three young daughters and, and that was a move. Yeah. Oh, that's a move from Melbourne to Brisbane, let alone from Italy to Australia, yeah. isn't it, with a young family? Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it's amazing how uh, the kids, though, that like they're, they're pretty – they're pretty good like that. They can adapt quickly, yeah. and um, you know, as long as you show them that you're happy in, a, in an environment or comfortable, they they will follow you. Um, and you know that it's not easy. Mm. I admit it's not easy. The coaching role is not easy because you don't know where you're going to be from one day to the other. <laughs> How long we're we moving up there, Dad? Well, <laughs> we'll just keep an eye on the table at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, at least a season. <laughs> at least a season. So, mate, what's your first memories? Obviously, is you said you played up with a lot of sport. Was was soccer an early passion for you or was it mixed amongst all the other sports? Uh, it was mixed. You know, well, the soccer was a passion but it was also mixed with cricket uh, in the summer. Well, tell me uh, about John Aloisi as a cricketer. Oh, I would like to say I was really good but uh, <laughs> I, I used to think that I was a fast bowler. We played a lot of cricket there with my brother in the, in the backyard or yep. in the driveway and then, you know, with other people on the street and then at school. Um, you know, probably better fielder than anything. Right. Oh, yeah, I used to. <laughs> Hard to make a career out of being yeah, a fielder. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> no, I, I could bowl, um, bat a little bit, but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed my cricket. Um, but then when I got a little bit older, I I started to lean towards soccer a lot more, and it became a summer sport as well. Yeah. Soccer. So the, I ended up um, playing that nearly all year round. Did it come naturally to you? Were you one of those kids that was a standout from a young age? No, it didn't come naturally to me. My, my brother was more of a natural uh, yeah, um, player. And, and and with most sports, my brother was pretty – as a cricketer, he was a better batter. He could uh, he could really smash a ball. I, I had to really work um, on everything that I did, you know, with, with sport. Um, and and it probably that drove me more because I knew I had to work hard. Right. I, I always wanted to be – better than, you know, Ross, my older brother, he's three years older, so it drove me to work harder. <laughs> um, you know, at school I, you know, yeah, I was pretty decent at athletics when I was younger as well, so I had that uh, athletic ability. But um, in terms of natural ability and technique with, uh, with soccer, I had to work hard at it. They say now that you're sitting here as a coach, they say often the best coaches are the ones that weren't the sublimely talented because they know what it is to work and to succeed and then to explain it to their players rather than being a superstar that it just came to. Yeah, they do say that because with the, the superstars that, uh, you know, they, it's it, they, sometimes they don't even know no. how they're doing it. It just happens. It just happens. But yeah. look, I would say that even the, the, the naturally talented, they still had to work hard when they were younger. Because uh, natural ability doesn't come just mm. without working, you know. So I'm sure that uh, they spent hours on end at home, you know, with the ball, with their mates. And uh, and that's probably what we miss a little bit now um, because you've got other things to do. You, you know, a lot of kids are now, you know, on PlayStations or, or whatever else. So they're not really outside as much as probably when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we played a lot of different sports and our, we just played everything under the sun. We, was, we spent, you know, hours outside and I was lucky that I had my brother as well because, you know, sport was our, our main focus in life. 
do you remember your first competitive game under under what? What would you have been? Oh, I would have been, uh, I reckon it was, I would have been five and I'm not sure if it was under sevens because I don't think they had under fives back then. Right. Um, but I remember I was more of a defender when I started playing um, and then slowly, slowly I moved up the pitch. But uh, I used to get stuck in um, <laughs> and then, you know, slowly I, I realised that scoring goals was more exciting <laughs> and I moved up the pitch. But uh, it was, yeah, I can't really remember the first game, um, but I remember I played for a team in Adelaide called Ingle Farm because that was the only team that would allow young, really young players playing. And um, then I moved to Adelaide City at the age of seven, played in there under 10s, and then stayed at Adelaide City uh, as a junior for, you know, the, the, all the time that I spent in Adelaide and then uh, eventually moved overseas. Was it always the dream to become a professional soccer player or like what were you like at school? Were you sitting there thinking, I, I want to be a soccer player or where's it going to go I've, for I've, you? I've got this, um, I, I can't remember what year it was, but I remember speaking to Luke Darcy about it because I went to school with Luke. Yep. And uh, we went from uh, year three all the way through at Ross Trevor College um, all the way t- to the end of school. I didn't do year 12 there because I ended up going to the AIS in Canberra. But... Um, it was junior school, it was very early on, it might have even been year three. We had to write um, down um, what we wanted to be when we get older and and, uh, and put it in a vault and they buried it. And I'd oh, love like to a know. time capsule? Yeah, time capsule, yeah. So I'd love to know where that is. But I, um, I actually remember writing that I'm going to be a professional soccer player. And, <laughs> uh, and then year five, I got uh, that probably arrogant about it that I thought that's it, that's my life, that I, at the end of the, the school year, I signed a, a paper and gave it to the teacher. I said, keep this one day because, keep this because one day it will be uh, worth a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> In grade five, you're dishing out autographs, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was nine years old, so it was, uh, it was something that I look back a bit embarrassed about it, but that's that's how much I believe I was going to become a professional footballer. I that was my life. That's what all I thought about, sort of dreamt about, um, you know, even to the extent sleeping with a ball in, in bed, watching, you know, plays that I admired, um, playing in Serie A at the time was the number one league around the world and thought one day I'm going to be playing there. And, uh, you know, it came true. My word, it did. Obviously, I can't wait to speak about penalties and Uruguay and stuff. I need to just relax and get mm-hmm. us to that point. But were you ever involved in penalty shootouts as a young kid? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> it was. I was 14 um, involved in under-17 cup game with Adelaide City. Yep. So a lot of the boys were older than me. and um, But, uh, you know, I still was friends with them because I'd, played with them the whole year and uh, we made the quarterfinals, uh, it was penalty shootout and I was taking the fifth penalty and uh, I remember that well because huh. from the halfway line to the penalty spot, I was shaking my legs, I felt, felt like jelly. Uh, but it was a penalty to stay in um, and not to, to actually win it and, uh, and I remember putting the ball down, going back to the 18-yard box, lining up and, and I had my sort of my run up but, you know, I hadn't practised that many penalties and I hit the ball and, and I heard a loud bang, but it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. But the referee uh, whistled and said the keeper moved and so I thought, oh, this is all right, lucky. And then I had the exact same penalty again and missed it. 
And um, and why I remember it so well is because not only could get knocked out, fourteen year old, but I remember walking in the change room and guys that were older than me were crying, and, uh, and then I heard a loud scream. One of my teammates punched the wall, but at that time it was like uh, it looked like it was a wooden wall veneer or whatever it was, and uh, he he smacked it, but it was brick, solid brick behind, and smashed his wrist and. Um, and I've never asked him how he felt when I was stepping up to take the penalty against Uruguay because he would have been shitting himself <laughs> or his wrist would have been sore. So it's obviously a, a fairly traumatic memory in your it mind because you've described it to memory. the moment. It was a traumatic memory. And if I speak to those players, they, they would remember it as well because, you know, uh, when junior uh, soccer, it was, uh, you know, you're playing with your mates yeah. virtually. And uh, so uh, winning things at that level and that age is, is such a big, big thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was that devastated about it that uh, I said to myself, that's never going to happen again. That uh, if I ever get put in that position, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I score. And um, and to do that, I made sure I was prepared. And, uh, and, you know, looking back now, I could have gone the other way and gone, I'm never going to take a penalty again. Yeah. But that, that didn't cross my mind. So you debuted in the uh, uh, prior to the A-League, it was the NSL, the National Soccer yeah. League here in Australia. You debuted at a crazy young age, didn't you? 15. I was, 15? Yeah, I was still Were you at, prepared at 15? Oh, well, obviously. Uh, Were you a little uh, bugger? Or? No, I wasn't little. I wasn't massive. Right. Um, but I wasn't little. But I... I learned how to protect myself pretty pretty early because back then there was no videos, there was no replays, there was, and I was uh, I had to play uh, in the local um, NPL, which was called State League, which is virtually just below the, the old National League. Um, and so you've been playing against men yeah, already. Yeah, I've been playing against men. And what age did you first play against men? Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. Right. And cool. back then, I was, being a striker, you're getting kicked from big lumps. And um, if you can't protect yourself, you're not going to last too long. So I learned how to protect myself. So I wasn't fearful in that way at all. I was uh, confident in my ability. Um, and I knew that if the coach was going to put me in, that he was confident as well uh, in what I could do. So, yeah, 15. Um, first professional game? First professional game. It was against Melbourne, old Melbourne Croatia, Melbourne Knights. What were you getting paid? Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember. I know that in the uh, local state league, I was getting paid $50 a game, $100 a draw and 150 a win. Yeah, so I was excited. I bet you were. I bet you were. Well, this is all right. I get paid to do something I love. Um, but I remember that game as well because uh, against Melbourne, Croatia back then, we, we had big crowds back then. It would have been between ten and 15,000. And Adelaide City were a, a very strong side that were always challenging for the title, um, at least getting in the finals. And... Um, and I remember that uh, I was on the bench, started on the bench. My brother had started the game and uh, he ended up getting subbed off. And then about 10 minutes later, I got subbed on. Oh. And uh, I ended up getting tackled by, uh, you know, an older experienced player from the opposition. And uh, Mark Talage, his name was, and he, uh, you know, thinking I'm only a kid, uh, as he tackled me and the referee gave a free kick, he leant over me and pushed my face to the ground. And um, and I just stayed down, but there was a bit of a melee around, and and I just stayed on the ground. But I had my head, to, uh, you know, towards the ground, and all of a sudden, th there's chaos around me. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, but I, I see my brother going, "Are you all right?" And I go, "What are you doing here? Didn't you get subbed <laughs> off?" And he goes, "No, I just come to check to see if you're all right." And I go, "Get off the pitch!" <laughs> Little did I know, a supporter jumped the fence. 
and uh, and tried to punch the, the the player who did that to me right. because they thought you can't do this to one of our own kids, you know. And uh, and it was front page of the paper the next day, and not for a good thing that soccer got front page, but um, I was a part of it. That was my debut. So where was your first professional goal scored? First professional goal was scored over in Belgium when I was seventeen years old. Right. Um, so we, we yeah, had so. A- it was, so from the uh, when I made my debut with the Adelaide City in the old National League, I went after that to the AIS yep. uh, in Canberra. And the reason why I went there is because uh, I, I thought that I still had a lot of learning to do and um, and it was a, a way to prepare myself to go overseas, you know, leaving family. I was only uh, 16, just turned 16, but I was also going to a good group. I was going to a group with uh, Mark Viduka was there, uh, Josip Skoko, uh, Craig Moore, um, and a few other players, and and these players, uh, players that I ended up playing with mm. in the 2006 World Cup. So, I I felt that I could improve playing with these players, training every day with these players, and that that will prepare me um, well to go when the time was right to go overseas. So, I ended up going overseas at the end of that year. How does uh, that happen? Do you, what, do you get a phone well, call? Well, no, I, I went back to Adelaide City uh, after the AIS, yeah. and was training uh, there, and and virtually on the verge of. You know, making my uh, another you know playing games and on a regular basis, but I was still virtually on the fringes. I wasn't a starting eleven player, and uh, we had a, a Serbian player that uh, was there at the time, and he said, "Look, I suggest you go overseas now. Here in Australia, it's semi-professional. Yep. Overseas is professional. I can help you go with uh, an agent that I know, and he can take you on trial to a couple of Belgium clubs." So I ended up going on trial. Um, it was around December time, and and uh, I went on trial to Standard Liège in Belgium. So a trial, you, you leave home with no deal locked in or anything. You yeah. just go there and yeah. show your wares. Yeah, the other side of the world, yeah, as a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. So, but I went with my dad right. uh, for two weeks. Oh, Rocky and, was on for that. Uh, yeah, good he, Rocky. Yeah, and um, but if you if you know my dad well, he hates flying. He um, hates leaving Adelaide, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was freezing. It was it was minus uh, where we were training. It was minus six, minus seven degrees. It was horrible, and I've never been so cold in my life. Um, and at the end of the two weeks, they they wanted me to stay, and my dad did say to me, he said, "Look, if if you want to become a professional footballer, uh, you should stay." He goes, "I wouldn't be able to do it though." He said, "This this would be, I wouldn't be able to do this," and I and I. I made the decision that I wanted to, and so went back home, got my gear, and then flew back over and and stayed over in Europe for most of my, my career. So as a sixteen-year-old, um, you obviously would have spoke Italian, I'm presuming. No, I didn't speak Italian right. because at home my parents spoke English. Right, so you spoke the, English, and that's it. Yeah, that was it. And so they're speaking French. So there. yeah, in, in Liège was the French-speaking part. I was in Liège for six months. Um, was it difficult? It was hard. What was that, hard about it? Oh, the language first. Um, the culture was completely different to what I was used to. Had no family, really had no friends. Had to look after yourself. Had to look after myself. Um, at first they, they were, you know, supplying, you know, dinners and I could go to a restaurant and eat and um, and then, you know, the, the longer it went on, then I had to start cooking for myself. What were you uh, like in that area? Nah, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible. 
have a go-to meal or not? Uh, yeah, pasta. <laughs> so blow me down, Johnny. Surprise, surprise. It's either going to be pasta or cornflakes. Oh, one and yeah, oh, well, the cornflakes one was a, an episode because I the, the, the first the breakfast I had, I had cornflakes and I went to the, the supermarket to go get uh, sugar, but it was all in French. Yeah. I thought, yeah, this looks like sugar. Brought it home, put it on the, the cornflakes. It was salt. <laughs> <laughs> Man of the world. Man of the world. So that's how it was back then. It was It was not, you know, I, I look back and I don't know if I could do that all again. As a player, did you look at the other players and think this is beyond me or I can do this? And yeah, I didn't look at the other players and think that. Right. I, I, you know, I felt, you know, part of it and comfortable enough um, to be in that environment. But it was it was ho- it was so much more than just football. That, that, that's if you talk to a lot of players from that era um, that went over there that, that made it, it. They they all had the same stories, you know. All, always the tough stories, you know. Missed home, um, you know. Clubs do the wrong thing. You got agents that were, you know, some of them were sharks. Yeah. Um, people don't care that much about you. It's you know uh, in Australia you're a, you're a big fish in a small pond. Mm. Yeah, you're just another player, and um, and if you don't do well, they they don't even think twice of getting rid of you. So it's it's you 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 know that you have to look after yourself. There's no one that's going to help you, and you got no one to turn to. Um, eventually, yeah, you end up getting close yep. to certain people that will help you, but um, you have to grow up very quickly. You moved reasonably quickly from there to Italy, didn't you? Yeah, I, it was two and a half years in Belgium. I from um, from Liège. I wasn't. Uh, I was mainly in their reserve team. I went to uh, Antwerp, Royal Antwerp, for two years, and that's when I started to play uh, first team football. And that's when I scored my first goal at seventeen years old. Do you remember uh, it? Yeah, I remember that well. I remember coming off from the bench. Um, someone took a shot, hit the crossbar, I followed in and, and scored. You know, there was it was a big moment. You know, to to as a striker, that's what you you know you're paid to do. That's what you love doing. Yeah. And to to be able to score your first professional goal, <laughs> I remember it. You know, really well. Did you keep your shirt on? Yeah, I did. Uh, there was a couple of times in my career that I took my shirt <laughs> off, uh, but uh, that that day there, I kept it on. <laughs> Back to John in a moment. The next episode of the Howie Games will drop on Thursday, April 2nd. But due to the uncertain times that we're currently living in, I'm not sure who it will be, but guaranteed there will be an episode on Thursday, April 2nd. So if you could please do me a huge favour and recommend the show to a couple of people, that will be wonderful of you. Because with you, yes, you, spreading the word, the show will be able to go on. Alrighty, back to Johnny. So it obviously went reasonably well there and then you're playing in front of Europe, so you're playing on a big stage in front of a lot of people. Mm. And Again, does it come through your agent? I'm fascinated by how this works, that all of a sudden you can be on your way to Italy, which can yeah. happen at the drop of a hat, seemingly yeah. in professional football. And and so back then Belgium was known to be a league that if younger players are doing well, they would go off to you know other countries. And the, and the top country back then that uh, was Italy in terms of, uh, you know, that was the Serie A, along with, Syria, along with uh, you know, the, the Premier League was uh, was still growing. Um, you know, the Spanish league was strong, but the Serie A was the strongest. And um, you know, I remember the scout coming to watch me in uh, in Belgium. Do you know the scouts coming to watch you? I did know because the agent told me. And then, um, do you feel that going out in the pitch? Uh, not really. I didn't right. think about it so much. Um, I remember the day that he came to watch too because I, I had a fever. 
and I didn't feel the best and I didn't think I had a great game. Um, but they liked enough of what they saw and went back to the club and said, you know, we, we think that he's worthwhile getting. And, um, you know, at the time I was only 19. So for them it was not a massive risk. Um, but, you know, probably looking back, going to Italy, even though it was, it was a great experience in terms of that helped me again grow up, but it was probably a bit too young to go to such a tough league. Right. And it was a tough league back then. I went to a team called Cremonese who was, they were fighting relegation and uh, things started really well. I eventually started playing straight away because their striker was struggling and, you know, I, I scored. Um, first game? Yeah, first game. Um, you know, things were going well. Played against uh, Inter Milan in San Siro, got man of the match. And, what was that yeah, like? Oh, it was unbelievable. You know, it was a dream come true. Growing up watching Serie yeah. A and then all of a sudden playing against uh, Inter Milan who Roberto Carlos was, you know, playing at the back for them. Uh, Could he kick a football? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh. he was he was brilliant, and so you know I just thought, oh, this is good, you know, this is easy. I belong, which you know there wasn't the case that I didn't belong, but I didn't know then how to put up with when things weren't going well, and we started to to really struggle and fight relegation, and and the Italian league was very defensive back then. So if it was defensive for the better teams, you can imagine for the lower teams, you know, hard, I would hardly get a touch or you know, a shot on goal and then all of a sudden you're getting bagged in the in the press and supporters are, are against you and right. and I, I didn't know how to deal with that. And I remember getting whistled at the stadium from my own supporters. I remember getting police escorts out of the stadium, you know, because the supporters want to have a go at the, your team. Police escorts yeah, after and, a bad result. Yeah, after a bad result because Gee. what I didn't uh, realise as well, so for a small uh, city like Cremona, them being in the Serie A, and it, and it happened after when I was in Spain, and uh, it's that them being in Serie A is great for the whole town because uh, when you play against a Juventus, there's, you know, thousands of people that will come to that city. So, you know, the cafes, the restaurants and all that will be able to make, you know, good money. But when you, you drop a division, you know, you, you're playing against mm. a team that's not as followed. So the cafes and that are also uh, restaurants are also struggling. So, the, you know, it's not great for, for anyone when you're not playing in the top flight. So it's the lifeblood of the town, the yeah. way that the footy team's yeah. going. Yeah, so if, if you're not doing well, you can't even walk down the street because, you you know, you get abused and... Um, and I, I struggled. I struggled with it, and um, and I didn't have a great time in Italy. I, from there, I you know I was happy when you know the Terry Venables asked if I would like to go to to Portsmouth. Was there times so as a young fellow at this stage, you can't walk down the street. Um, you're on the other side of the world. Um, you're dealing with language and cultural issues. What keeps you there? What keeps you from going? stuff this I'm going to get back on a plane and go back to the NSL and do pretty well there and be close to my family and yeah what kept me there was that I still wanted to play at the highest level possible right that that's that's uh, and and did you, you have doubts at all you do have doubts because you you know when things aren't going well you you know you start to doubt yourself am I good enough um, am I but um, you know you you sort of get over that with the uh, with one good performance and that, and that's and that's the beauty of sport, you know, you're never as good as what people make you out to be and you're never as bad as what they make you out to be. And um, But, you you know, you have to learn how to do all that. And I had to pretty young and um, and that, that was uh, – 
that probably helped me as time went mm. on, you know, because then I, I when I did go to other countries and other um, in other teams that were in, you know, pressure situations, I was able to deal with it a lot better. When was your first cap for Australia? It was when I was playing at uh, Cremonese. I ended right. up, Terry Venables was the, the coach. Right. Um, we played Hell-tell. against... Oztel, yeah. as he yeah, became. Oztel, yeah. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> you know what? He was uh, he was one of the best coaches was I he? had. Yeah, he was, he was a great man manager. Um, he was also very, uh, you know, good tactically. He made things simple for us players. And uh, and that was the beauty about him. Where he probably fell down in terms of what the people from the outside saw of him, that he had a lot of, you know, things going on in his life, you know, mm. fingers in different pies. Mm. And so the national team wasn't just his main focus. Right. Um, and, and then we failed to make the World Cup. But he looked in, like the type of cat that could be sort of selling used cars on the side. He looked yeah, like one of those blokes yeah. out of that show, Minder. You just never quite know what was going he, on he, with he's him. A, he's, a great, uh, he's a great talker. Yeah, right. <laughs> but no, he's... Uh, so he, he gave you your first cap? Yeah, he gave me a first cap. Uh, it was uh, against... Well, at the time, Terry Venables was our... He, he just got appointed and I hadn't made a, a, a national team uh, squad before because... When I was playing in Belgium, I had the opportunity to go to the Under-20 World Cup and we had a camp. I was only 17 at the time. We had a camp in um, in Holland. I went to that um, and uh, they said, look, we've got to have uh, qualifiers and back then we'll play qualifying the Oceania. Mm-hmm. So against Fiji and New Zealand, we had a really strong squad. So I had Mark Viduka and these all these players in this squad. And then we had the, if once we qualify, we'll go to the World Cup. So there was five weeks of qualification, then five weeks of World Cup. Mm. And at the time I was just breaking into Antwerp's first team at 17. And I asked the coach back then if I didn't have to go to the qualifiers, if I could just go to the World Cup. And he said, no problem. A week before the qualifiers, he called me up, you have to come back. And I said, no. And he said, well, if you don't, we'll suspend you from your club. And I said, well, I'm not going to come back. And I said, I really want to play in the World Cup. He goes, no, you have to come for the qualifiers or else, you know, you're not going to come to the World Cup. We'll suspend you. And so I uh, decided not to play for the national team. I had to actually write a letter saying that um, I'm not going to represent Australia. And it was a big decision to make. But at that time, I was at a crossroads whether I'm going to make a career in Europe or I'm going to you know, struggle to end up having a career because I'm going to spend so much time. Yeah. So actually you have to write a letter? Yeah. Dear whoever. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had to do it to the national team and it had to be uh, addressed also to FIFA to say that I'm going to not represent Australia, that um, that I don't want to represent Australia. At the time I had dual passports, uh, the Italian and Australian, and, uh, and I had to say that I was representing, the, if called upon, I was going to represent Italy, but I was never going to. I didn't want to represent Italy. That, what if you the, got called up? Oh, well, I still wouldn't have gone. Right. I still wouldn't have gone because eventually I thought one day I'll get back, yep. you know. But it was a big call to make because who knows, you know, if Terry Venables didn't come into the national team, if I ever would have got called up. And I was grateful for that. And uh, Who's your first match against? Macedonia in Skopje. We won 1-0. Aurelia Vidma scored uh, the winner. And running on in your national coloured shirt? No, it was brilliant. Was I started it? that game. It was, it was a massive highlight. It's, it just felt... I felt different putting on the national team shirt than than playing for a club side because club side, it was business, and and even though you love the club that you're playing for and you give everything for those club colours, it still um, it wasn't in your heart as much as the national team. National team, 
growing up, I dreamt about playing for them and dreamt about playing World Cups. And to, to put on the jersey was, you know, that was the ultimate. Following your career, um, obviously you went over to the UK and you were involved with Terry of Animals and you played and went well over there. But I can always remember looking up, and I still don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Osasuna? Osasuna, Osasuna. Yeah, I used yeah, to look yeah, up. You yeah, used to look yeah. up in the paper and that's yeah, the only yeah, way you yeah. get results, you yeah, know, and the little yeah. results yeah. at the back. <laughs> and you'd see if they're, how they'd gone yeah, and yeah. if Aloisi had scored. Yeah, yeah. But at that stage, um, so you'd played in the Serie A, you'd played in the Premier League, yeah. um, you'd scored in those, you'd mm-hmm. you end up scoring in the Spanish League. But you were playing against the, you know, you were playing against the Real Madrid Galacticos and yeah. uh, Barcelona at New yeah. Camp and, like, this is... This is boys' own man- annual stuff, Johnny. Yeah, it was um, it was the best league that I played in, right? At, and it was the most uh, enjoyable league that I played in. Um, the Italian league was very defensive, so I didn't enjoy it as much. I enjoyed the English league. Um, it was it was fast, and uh, as a striker, you got a lot of chances. But uh, technically and tactically, the the Spanish at that time was uh, was the best. And uh, yeah, and Real Madrid had. Galacticos and they won Champions League and Barcelona at that period when I first arrived were going through a bit of a crisis and then you know when I left they were the number one mm. um, side in in the Europe and in the world and um, and just to to play at the New Camp play at um, you know Real Madrid Stadium Bernabeu was uh, was great but also we won there you know there was games that you know we beat Real Madrid one year with who but, in the side. They had um, Zidane, uh, Figo, um, they had Beckham, they had Roberto Carlos. <laughs> so they, they were the Galacticos. Yeah, that was when they started. You with pa- the Galacticos. You, didn't you pants them at one stage? Didn't you? Yeah, we beat them four one. Right, that, that, that game. We, we we used to beat them at home quite a bit because our place was a hard place to come and probably it was hard for them to get up for it as well right, because right. you know they've been playing Champions League midweek against someone and Barcelona the week before then they had to come to Osasuna yeah. and play in the you know, 20,000 seater stadium that people uh, they would literally uh, yell abuse throw things at them and right. it, was, it wasn't a nice place for them to come and visit and we, we used to beat Real Madrid quite often at home You'd had a long and successful professional career at that stage is there any part of you at that point is I'm still a bloke from Adelaide and I'm playing against World Cup winners like Beckham was beyond football itself yeah. no when you're playing you, you're just focusing really on playing and you're focusing on on yourself and making sure that you do everything possible to mm-hmm. perform and making sure your team is performing and and you don't really worry too much who you're up against and you don't you don't think about it that much right. you know you, you respect them but you don't fear them and um, and I remember you know, there was only a couple of times where I really uh, saw what someone in the opposition did and just went oh that's just unbelievable that was Ronaldinho <laughs> he he received the ball with his back to play and a defender came sprinting out and as he came sprinting out, just flicked the ball over his head and received it on the other side. And it was something that I'd never seen before on a football pitch. But um, that was really it. You know, you when you're out there, you're, you're focused on winning. You were on the bench um, when Venables was in charge in the second World Cup qualifier at the MCG yep. where oh, oh, the Aussies were 2-0 up, up at that point. Yeah, 2-0 up. To the back post, Kewell's there, back across. Probably my biggest low point of any sporting event I've seen live. That yeah, one. yeah, it was. Especially we drew one one in uh, Iran. Um, 
and we were confident because we had a really good team and Venables had us playing good football. You, you were confident, mate. I was mates in the crowd saying, right, we better start thinking about booking our tickets yeah, to the World and Cup. I, and I think that was the issue. I <laughs> yeah, think that we, right. I think we were 2 nil up and it was too easy. It was know? a dominant, yeah, dominant performance. Yeah. And I remember, you know, being on the bench and thinking, oh, we're going to go to the World Cup. This how good is this? And, I, and I'm pretty sure quite a few other players out on the pitch felt the same. And I remember the serial pest coming on the pitch. And, Peter Hall. Yeah, and jumping on the on the goal and ripping down the net. And now I don't know, and you can't blame an individual, but that did break up that that game. And um, and after that, we weren't the same. That we 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 defended poorly on two occasions that they got through and, you know, having dominated them, going away with 2-2 draw, not losing a game in those qualifying series yep. and being kicked out of World Cup, it was it was the worst feeling. Ali Doye, the danger for Australia here, the flag's down! It's an equaliser for Iran! 2-2 here! Disaster for Australia! Take and us into the rooms. Yeah, I can remember that there was a player in there that was um, that was sobbing that bad that it was it was like someone had died and um, and he was a player that wasn't even in the squad he was he was in the, the actual extended squad but he was in the stand for that game and uh, you know everyone looked and thought well is he all right and um, it was just th- that bad because he thought this is he's never going to go to World Cup. He's, and he was uh, his name was Robbie Hooker. He was he was one of the older players, and he was playing in the old national league. And he probably felt this was the only time that you know he would have a chance of going to the World Cup. And uh, it was it was a bad feeling. It was like someone had died. Your old, you used to room with Mark Bosnich. I, I roomed with him a couple of times. Um, the, the, my first camp in uh, in Macedonia. I think that was the last time I. Re- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can. I I just remember the shots of him when he was picking the ball out of the back of the net, and yeah. it was just. It's it's like it wasn't happening, Johnny. Yeah. You, you know what it was. It was look, and Mark Bosnich will probably look at this and and think you know what could have been as well. Um, that he's one that that moves on pretty quickly, but he and this is where I can understand Robbie Hooker crying so much. Mark Bosnich still had. Um, you know, the Premier League to go back to at the time. Um, yeah, he was probably never going to play in a World Cup. He didn't know that. He probably felt that he was. And it was hard on him and hard on everyone. But it would have been hard on those players that were, mm. you know, they, they had their local sides to go back to and uh, and probably felt they were never going to get another opportunity. But it was it was a hard moment for everyone to take. When's the first time you meet... Was hitting because it when he's given the job as Australian coach, which yeah. was real late in the scene, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very late in the scene. So we uh, we played in the Confederations Cup in two thousand and five. Are Frank we allowed Farina. to say here you scored twice against Germany and Argentina? Oh, thanks. And on yeah, fire, yeah, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. On fire. <laughs> I wanted to mention it. That's yeah, why I brought I it up. <laughs> <laughs> so with, after that tournament, um, Frank Freino got the sack, and um, and we virtually only had. What was it uh, three three months to prepare for the qualifier against you? So how are you feeling about that when the coach gets a sack with three months to go as players? Are you guys thinking, oh, here we, we go again? Yeah, we're, we're just thinking. We we sort of had an idea if they were going to get rid of Frank, it was going to be for a top name, and yep. um, and we were shocked when Gorsi didn't got announced because he was a big name, mm. and he was he, he had done well for the Dutch national team, he had done well at PSV, coach Real Madrid, and and he just. 
the aura about the guy, as soon as he walked into our first camp, which we had in Holland, it was like, okay, we're, we're a chance here. And uh, we, Just from the presence of the coach? Just the presence. Not wow. even his tactical, not even his training. It was just him walking into the room. And and it's because we, we knew we had a good side. We had really good players playing at the top of their game, playing the top leagues around the world. And uh, and we felt that we were a team that could go to the World Cup. And uh, and then we felt when Hitting walked in that, uh, you know, we had every opportunity now. Training under him, was it hard? Was It It was hard. It was intense. It was uh, – I, I remember that um, every session was um, – at an intensity that was more than a game, so we were we were super fit. And when we played in games, and what he did, and he was he was uh, ruthless, um, but he could be because he knew he was only going to be there for a little bit, and he needed to uh, make a big impact. He would put you under that much pressure in training, in terms if you uh, bad touch. Uh, misplace the pass, he would yell at you and, and you know, it would be, can you take this pressure? Now, if you couldn't take the pressure, more than likely he wouldn't be able to use you in a big game and a big game is like a Uruguay mm. and qualifying for the World Cup and uh, and so he put us under that much pressure and I remember playing a friendly game, I think it was against Jamaica and we were 5-0 up and he was yelling and yelling at <laughs> our players, you know, make sure you do, do that, don't give the ball away. And then when we got to the Uruguay games, he was calm. And and him being calm gave us that calmness. And uh, and we weren't nervous at all in, in those two games. We we just felt like that, you know, we we'd been through all that pressure. And if we see our boss being calm, then we must be prepared. We must be ready. And we and we were ready. One of the great unknowns as a, as a fan of the game at that stage because you blokes all played overseas. As I said, well, I'd be looking up your little score mm. at the back of the paper and obviously Kuhl and Viduka were a couple of the biggest names and they played together at Leeds and there was all this stuff about whether they got on and I remember going into that whole campaign thinking, oh, geez, I hope those two blokes get on all right mm. because if they splinter it, it could stuff the whole <laughs> show. But that, yeah. that was how it was reported, yeah. Johnny. It was yeah. like they were the two biggest names. They were said to have egos. How was that relationship that you saw within that camp? Because it obviously went well because yeah. of the result show. Yeah, look, I think that um, that's part of uh, the coach's job. How can he deal, and how can he um, how can he get the best out of the individuals that you know? I'm not saying that any of them had egos, mm. but they all got different personalities, and mm. they're all big players. And then sometimes you don't get along with your teammate, you know. That, uh, but we all had a common goal, and the common goal was to to play for Australia and, and play in the World Cup. So that wasn't going to get in the way of if there was, you know, a player that didn't get along with another player. And uh, and Gusidic made that very clear that he's had to drop bigger players than what he's, uh, you know, had, having to deal with at that stage with an Australian national team. You know, he, he egos, the Dutch have got egos yeah. and he's, he yeah. was able to deal with that. So it, we, we had a, you know, close group. A lot of the players had played together for years. Um, and again, if you weren't mates, you still, you know, you're mates on the training pitch. Right. You're, you're mates when you're playing. Um, and, and off the pitch, a lot of us were mates and then we got along really well. Was Kuehl as magical as he seemed from the outside on the footy pitch? Weatherall with the header. Kuehl! Oh, what a superb volley that was. Harry Kuehl. Kuehl, I'll say, um, 
when he was at Leeds United, was probably the best left-sided player in the world at that stage. He was he was unbelievable. And he was a kid at that stage. Yeah, too. he was unbelievable. He was he was lightning quick, but he used to glide and he glide past players. He had a, a, a magical left foot. Um, he he could score goals, set up goals. He was um, he was frightening. And then Kuehl went to Liverpool and, and ended up having all these injuries and, um, and you know, it, it hindered his career. But, um, you know, we knew that a good Harry Kuehl, uh, um, even at 60 70% fit Harry Kuehl, could make a difference for our team. And uh, and he did at the World Cup, it showed that, yeah. you know, and, and, and Gus uh, knew that. And then he knew that, you know, Harry was never going to get back to the Harry he was. But Harry is still able to give us something, and he did. And the big V bomber Viduka seemed to start scoring goals at was it the Knights, Melbourne Knights, yeah. and just wherever he went, he just used to see score goals. There's yeah. another bloke you look in the back of the paper, whether it was in Turkey or Scotland or wherever, his name would be oh, there. Yeah, he's outside as well. He's outside. Viduka is uh, the, the two most talented players, and I played with you know in the national team with quite a few. They're all different. You know, Bresciano was exceptional. Vinny Grillo was brilliant in his uh, area of the pitch. You know, then your Puocons and that's ages. But Viduka and Kuehl were for me the standouts. You know, they you know for different reasons. Viduka was a man mountain. Yeah. You couldn't move the guy. If the ball got into his feet, you weren't getting the ball off of him. And and he had incredible skill for such a big big guy like that. And um, and he could score goals. And uh, and he did score goals against the best best players in the world. Everywhere. And uh, yeah, and you know, and we knew that uh, Viduka was even if he wasn't scoring goals, he would bring other people into play. And uh, just an unbelievable player. That's the end of John Aloisi Part A. That special, special night in Sydney is awaiting you at a press of your podcast button on Part B. Listener.